Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, to another Romeo Carey podcast. I want to start out this podcast with, it's a common expression to say when you see somebody, how you doing? It's always followed by, well, I'm doing well. And they say, how are you? And then you say, well, and then you get on with whatever business. It's a nice gesture. But what I've coined is a new, a whole new process. And it's when somebody asks you, how you doing? Say, how's your moment? And they'll look at you funny and you'll take them out of that, that routine gesture. And they'll say, uh, what do you mean? How's my moment? Then you have a conversation. Now you just engage in a real conversation. Then you say, well, life only takes place in the present moment. Ask me, how's my moment? How is your moment? And then by that time, maybe I'll read a name tag. I'll, I'll, I'll know who they are or Maybe it's someone familiar, and I'll say, my moment just got better because so-and-so is in it. And then they'll be, wow, they'll be touched by that. You actually connected with me. And now you've taken a simple little conversation, and you've elevated it into consciousness because now you're really talking to somebody. That's that's just a starting point. So when you meet somebody, it's not, how you doing? And say, how's your moment? And then that'll jar them out of their lethargy, you know, the, the drip of uh, living in the unconscious world of everyday living and it'll elevate them into consciousness and then you say ask me how's my moment and they'll say how's your moment and you'll say it just got better because diane is in it and boom you're off you're off to the races because now you're taking in life at the moment and you can you can live consciously in there out of the the world of the unconscious I've got an amazing podcast for you. This uh, goes back to 2006, and it was a interview that had to go to Las Vegas for it. And this was somebody very integral to my dad's first movie, Timothy Carey, uh, The World's Greatest Sinner. The story that he tells, Ray Dennis Deckler tells, is extremely touching. It came clear to me that what an influence somebody could have on another person. These are two young people taking on the world, trying to live their dreams, and how much one single person can affect and play into somebody else's life. It's really a, a story of collaborating and seeing the best in somebody and taking that as an inspiration for the rest of your life. And that's what this interview amounts to. If you didn't know Ray Dennis Deckler, Ray Dennis Deckler, after making The World's Greatest Sinner, went on to become film producer-director in his own right. He was an auteur. He died in 2009. He was about 73 years before I interviewed him. And uh, he was in a video rental store, his own store, selling a lot of his own titles. People were coming in. It was a it was a little buzzing, you know, Las Vegas Strip video rental store. The story of uh, Ray Dennis Deckler really goes back. He had you know he had cult fans, movie cult fans. He did movies like I think one of his biggest movies was uh, The Thrill Killers in 1964, just a couple of years after The World's Greatest Sinner. You know he was going on film festival tours. He was he really became a in the 60s and 70s, you know, his work, his, his work, he eventually made more than two dozen films. He riveted audiences at drive-ins and theaters. And uh, even his movie started to surface on cable television and video. Uh, at film festivals and college film courses started talking about him. Directors like David Lynch and John Waters, even Quentin Tarantino, you know, they drew inspiration from, you know, B-movies and Mr. Steckler's name began to be really be mentioned with those of, you know, the genre masters like 
Russ Myers and you know, Russ Meyer and uh, Ed Wood. You know, there's a book also written called Incredibly Strange Films in 1985, and in there, Mr. Steckler's films were quoted as weird, individualistic, radical, exemplifying an unfettered freedom, impossible in big studios. You know, it's just uh, this is a, a real kind of tribute to somebody who didn't really know where his life was headed. He wanted to be an actor. He ended up having such a an experience in The World's Greatest Sinner, my father's first feature film, that it set him on a course to kind of imitate who my what my father was doing. And so without further ado, I bring you the Timothy Carey documentary interview with cinematographer, producer, director, actor, Ray Dennis Steckler. Today is look- September 16, 2006. I'm here with Ray Dennis Steckler, and we're uh, shooting his interview for the Timothy Perry documentary. Five, four, three, two, one. First off, can you give us permission to use your image, Dennis? Yeah, but promise me you won't put in any porno films. <laughs> give me your word. I'll give you my word. Could you tell me first off what, how you first met Timothy Perry? I first met your dad, Timothy Carey, or Timothy C. Carey. What does the C stand for? Actually, it was Timothy A. Was, was it Timothy A? Okay, we'll start. Yeah, back then it wasn't. It was Agus, Aggie, Aga. Agolia came later. Agolia. Back then he was, he was strictly Timothy Carey. Why did I think it was the C? Okay, we'll start again. I first met your dad, Timothy Carey, um, when I came to California. Well, let me back up a little sure. bit because it's kind of important. Uh, 1959, I was stationed in Astoria at the Army Pictorial Center in New York City, or actually the Pictorial Center was in Long Beach, but I, I would go to New York City. I would go to Times Square all the time That's because I like movies, and whenever I got some free time from the Army, and I'm walking down 42nd Street, and um, I look up and there's a, a Kirk Douglas movie playing, and uh, it said Paths of Glory, and I said, oh, Great, a war movie, lots of action. So um, I go in, and I'm watching the movie, and I'm, I find that it's, it's not just a war movie. It's a special movie. There was something completely different about this film, and I, I didn't quite know. Even though I was a photographer and a cameraman in the Army, and I just didn't understand what I was seeing yet because I've never seen a movie with this kind of a style. It was a feature movie, documentary type of film in a way, and Kirk Douglas was very good in it, and Adolph Manjou, and George McCready, and Ralph Meeker, and Joe Turkel, Joe Turkel, I think his name was. And uh, and then I didn't know your dad at that time. I didn't even know who he was. I hadn't seen The Killing. And there's this scene where they they have to take these three soldiers and sacrifice them. And your dad was one of the soldiers that had to be sacrificed in front of a firing squad because the whole group of the soldiers, they... they they ran backwards. They were supposedly cowards, uh, political cowards, we'll call them. They didn't want to die, that's all. And I, I understood this was based on a true event. But anyway, there's this great scene with Ralph Meeker and Joe Tickell and Timothy Carey and Ralph Meeker. They're in this cell, and they're going to die the next day. And I think Ralph Meeker says something like, you see that cockroach? We're all going to be dead tomorrow, and that cockroach is going to be alive. And at that moment, your dad goes, Pow! And smashes him. And he says, "No, he won't." And I, I, I just, 
Wow. The rest of the movie, okay, forget it. But that scene, and I never forgot it. Now, a friend of mine, Ron McManus, who was in my platoon, I was an E5 then, and I had my own platoon. He left to go to California a few months before I got out of the service. And he called me up and says, if you can be here at a certain time, I had been doing summer stock by that time in Berks County at the uh, Green Hills Theater. And uh, he called me, and I, w I was going to go to Carnegie Institute of Technology. I had already passed all the tests. I was ready to go to study drama there. And Ron says, if you come out here by a certain date, I can make you my assistant cameraman. You can work on this feature. And I'm saying, gee, I'm just getting ready to go to college. I worked so hard to go to college. And I said, well, who's making the feature? And he said, Timothy Carey. Do you know him? And I says, is that the guy from Pazagori that killed a cockroach? And he says, yeah. And I says, I'll be there. I skipped college everything because I wanted to meet your dad. I wanted to meet Timothy Carey. I said, I got to meet this guy. By then, I had seen the killing. I had spotted the killing, so I had, uh, and I, because I now, because when I saw Pass of Glory, I didn't even know who Stanley Kubrick was, but I had, because you're in New York, you can find all these retrospective movie theaters, and I found the killing, and I went to see your dad blow the horse away, and I said, this guy is the greatest. Uh, I even thought I saw your dad in a Tarzan movie once. I'm not sure if he was a native or not, but the guy looked just like him. I'm not sure if that was your dad or not. So anyway, so I, I, I finished my weekend summer stock. Uh, uh, I did Anna Christie, and then uh, I left, and my friend Punchy Richard J. Kozlowski, my buddy from Reading, Pennsylvania, who I just did a documentary on him just, just recently. We were uh, born two days apart, lived two doors apart. We were inseparable friends until he went into the Navy. I went in the Army, but we finally got back together and headed for California to meet Tim. And it was a long trek, but when we got there, your dad was great to us. And he says, yeah, you're hired. You're hired. 50 bucks a week. I says, great. $50 a week. That's more than I'm making in unemployment. <laughs> so I was assistant cameraman, and then as, as luck would have it, whatever, the Ron McManus got into an argument with your dad about something. I'm not quite sure exactly what it was, and uh, uh, I, I wound up being the cameraman on World's Greatest Sinner for like 90% of the movie, I think. When I saw it, I, I'm sure I photographed close to 90%. And, uh, uh, oh gosh, what a great memory with your dad. Uh, can we just cut for a second? Oh, yeah. Uh, the door's open. I can hear Glenn yakking away. It's distracting me. I lost my concentration. Okay, okay. Anyway, um, Ron McManus, the cameraman, as I was saying, uh, they they had some kind of a dispute. I, I'm not. I don't remember what it was. It was it was over this the uh, lighting or something or the sound or something. It was a combination of a lot of things because Ron was a good guy and so was your dad. But all of a sudden there was a conflict, and it was the scene where that we're in the funeral home in the coffin where your dad's talking. Supposedly, supposedly to his mother. And um, so Ron left and left me there and says goodbye. And um, all I can remember is that we were using this Mitchell camera and it had a rack over. You had to rack it over to look through it and then you racked it over when you're ready to shoot. And uh, I was so nervous that I forgot to... St I got to start over again. You got to shut him up. Shut Just him. tell him to shut up. He has to talk He can talk lower. No, no, he, he has to talk lower. See, you have to understand, the door, the door is closed, but the sound comes across the top. And he... Which is, it's how we doing a documentary, and customers that come in think it's exciting. You guys need to do a documentary. Okay. Ron, Mc, Ron McManus and your dad had some sort of a disagreement uh, when we were shooting the funeral scenes. Uh, that was the scene where your dad was talking to supposedly the, his mother 
in the in the coffin. And um, I don't know what it was. Anyway, Ron came back and says, I'm leaving the show. And I says, well, okay. And I was always taught, like, if your boss leaves, you leave too. You go. And I said, Ron, do you want me to pack it in? He says, no, you should stay. Says, and, he, you know, because Ron was in my platoon under me for, for a year in New York. So I said, are you sure? And then my friend Punchy says, no, we got to stay. We got to stay. It's too much fun. It's too much fun. You know, and we haven't even, you know, we, you know, we had shot all these other scenes, which I'll go back to, uh, 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 like at the, the, the con- what was it? The convention center? What was that place on it? Long Beach Arena. Long Beach Arena. Yeah, we'll go back to that. So anyway, Ron said, uh, no, you go ahead. So I stayed. And we're using Mitchell cameras, which you have to rack over. And uh, you look through it, then you rack it back so the film now can go through the lens. And the first take I shot was your dad did a 10-minute take in, on the coffin. I, I I don't know. He was ad-libbing the whole thing. Mama, mama, whatever. You know, and, and I forgot to rack over. So black, completely blank. The whole reel, the whole reel, the whole, roll, the whole 10-minute roll. But I didn't know that. And afterwards, he says, how was it? I said, well, that was great. That was great. And your dad says, okay, that's it. I says, um, you think maybe we could take another another uh, shot, one more shot? He says, you want me to do that whole thing over again? And I says, Tim, you know, since this is my first shot in a movie that I've ever done, from, would you mind? He says, that whole roll of film. And I says, no, let's just one more time, please, sir. Um, he says, all right. And and he did it. And unfortunately, he did it even better. And, and he was more precise in the scene, if I recall, the second time. It only ran about eight minutes, the take. And um, and then, then when we went to the lab to look at the footage a few days later, and I'm getting a chance to see my first shot I ever shot for a movie, and it's nothing on the film. Absolutely nothing for 10 minutes. We did get the soundtrack, and, and he's looking at me. I says, well, I said take, take a second look. <laughs> Unfortunately, he got the second one. You know, saved my butt. You know, but anyway, go back a little bit. When we first got there, we were shooting at the Long Beach Arena. Was that it? And uh, we're down there, and 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 your dad had this guy from New York. You can see him breaking the windows. He he just looks like somebody that would be next to Peter Falk or someone. And and he came all the way out to be in this movie from New York. Your dad knew him, and I don't remember his name. And and he he kind of took over the whole scene <clears throat> because what happened? <clears throat> your dad wanted to, all these extras. They were free extras. And he wanted them to to in, sort of incite a riot. So he said, just do whatever you feel like doing. Do whatever you feel like doing. And we're starting to photograph. And the next thing I know, they're throwing things through the, the door, the glass, breaking everything. Outside, they're turning over cars. And it's a real riot. And I'm there shooting. And we're all shooting. We had three cameras going. I had two assistants. I said, with Aries, I said, just shoot, just shoot. And the whole place was just torn up. And when it was all over, the police came, everybody came. And I, I don't know how your dad ever got out of it or what it cost him. I don't know. But it, it, there had to be a fifty, dollars $100,000 worth of damage there. The cars, I don't know who they belonged to. But these guys got into the mood because your dad was a good director. You know, he got them going. And this guy from New York, he was just happy. And he said, now... He said, what about my close-up, Tim? You know, I mean, I don't, we never did shoot the guy's close-up. And I don't know if he ever came back again, but he was somebody your dad knew from New York. But you can see it when you freeze frame. You'll see him right there, that Italian-looking guy. You know, it was, it was a great experience. So at that point, I learned that uh, just do whatever you have to do to get to see him. <laughs> I never did anything that extreme. But it was great. It was great. So, oh, gosh. Okay. You got a question? Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, do you ever have any arguments with him, stuff that you wanted to be on it for a long time? Or no, I never had any real arguments. He, uh, <clears throat> uh, I, I, uh, one time I was in a closet in a changing bag changing film, and um, uh, because 
I always wanted to, I had this thing, because I was the assistant cameraman when we started, and I like to change my own film for the Mitchell, because the assistant guys that were hanging around there, they were Aeroflex guys, they didn't know much about Mitchell. I really shot that whole movie without an assistant that could help me load. I loaded almost every magazine there, and it takes time to do that. There were, they were a thousand foot roll, I mean, you know, a thousand feet. And um, I'm in the closet, and all of a sudden, the door opens, and I says, hey, don't like, don't, but I was in the bag. I was extra protective. I go in a closet in, in this house where, where I don't remember where the house was, but we go in the house and I go in the closet. So if anything happened, I, I, you know, I was afraid the bag leaked, all kinds of things. I was very, I didn't want to screw up like I did on that very first shot, you know. And your dad had this bow constrictor and he threw it in the closet with me, you know. And I got this bow constrictor going all around my neck and everything, but I knew he was harmless, but I didn't like it. But there was no way I was going to take my hands out of the changing bag and lose the film. I said, why did you do that? He says, I was testing you. You know, that sound like your dad? I was testing you. You know, and then, then the, what was the guy's name? Gil Barreto. I don't know how many times on that movie we heard, Barreto! Barreto! Anytime he needed something, oh, Gil was there. What a wonderful guy he was. Have you ever seen him again? Gil? Oh, he was... Oh, he is so he was so wonderful, just a great guy. Yeah. Uh, so you know, the, and the only time we had a, um, a an argument and, and a discussion about it, and uh, he wanted to get this dolly shot down the hallway in this house. Do you remember that long dolly shot through the hallway? And I said, "Why don't you just lock the camera and come down the hall?" Because it was a bear to try and get. And he says, "He says that's not how Stanley Kubrick would have done it. Stanley Kubrick gets exactly what he wants, and I want exactly what I want." And I said, "Well, I don't think it'll make any difference." I was kind of tired because these are twenty-hour days every day with your dad. And then when I saw the movie and, and the dailies, I realized how right he was. The shot, a shot, can make the scene, make the mood. It was just a wonderful shot, and I'm, I'm so proud that I did that because it was impossible to do. It, it gave me a lot of of impetus for later when I could uh, make my own films. Whenever I said I can't get this shot, the hell I can. Tim got it. I can get it. You know. There was one comment that Kubrick had in the, in the uh, I mean, it was a big scene, one of the final big rallies that he had before. His I party. was there. I was sitting next to him Were you really? at Pathé Labs. No, General General Lab, General Lab. Who were you sitting next to? I was sitting next to Kubrick, right there. Mr. Kubrick was there looking at that film of the rally where your dad is up there on the balcony and the crowd's down there. Go ahead. Now, you tell me what you're going to tell me. I, I, you know more of it than I do. I was just trying to get that. Because I remember years ago, you spoke about this. Yes. How did, he, how did you end up in the same room as Kubrick? Uh, uh, we were in the, in the projection room. It was a private projection room. So when did my dad invited Kubrick into the room? Oh, he insisted on coming. Stanley came. Stanley came. I met Stanley personally. For the, that, I, and I also had lunch with your dad and Stanley Kubrick. Also have letters from Stanley Kubrick, you know. I mean, I was, I'll, I'll jump just a little ahead, but when they were shooting The Shining, uh, there was a guy named Dennis Stock, a photographer, and he he worked for, uh, he did all those great stills on James Dean, Dennis Stock. He was, they were buddies. And he called me to the Hollywood Roosevelt as an assistant cameraman they were looking for, and I went, but I didn't know, I wanted to go because I wanted to meet Dennis Stock, but I had no idea that this was for Kubrick. No one told me. He didn't tell me. And he says, I think you'll be perfect for the job. He says, what have you done lately? I said, well, I just acted in a couple of movies. And he says, you are a cameraman and you act? I says, yeah, but that's, he says, and I lost the job. It was all that second unit stuff going up to the um, to the uh, the hotel in The Shining. You remember how they're driving? I could have been there, but I wasn't. 
But Kubrick, anyway, here's what happened there. He's looking at the shot, and the. Found him in the room. So my dad invited him. To your him. dad invited him, sure. Okay. Oh yeah, they were. Your dad worked for him at One Eye Jacks. You know, Kubrick quit the show. One Eye Jacks. He had a fight with Brando. I don't know what it was about, but he quit. And then, but Timothy stayed. The reason Timothy was on that movie was not Brando. Was was Kubrick? Kubrick wanted him on the film again because he was in all of his movies. Uh, I don't think he was in Spartacus, but this was before Spartacus. One Eye Jacks, right? But anyway, uh, yeah, so um, what a great scene in One-Eyed Jacks where you push your dad in the bowl. What a brando. What do you call me, you dirty tub of lard or something? Yeah, get up, you big tub of gut. Tub of gut. <laughs> that was great. That was great. But anyway, so so Kubrick comes, and we're, we're watching the movie, watching a rough cut, and uh, <clears throat> he... Uh, and he sat through the, all the whole rough cut, which wasn't finished yet, by the way. It was probably about 40 minutes, though. And he got to this this shot. He hadn't said a word at all. I'm saying, say, you like my photography? Say something, will you? But anyway, there's a scene where your dad is up there, and the crowd is down there. And you cut to your dad, and you cut to the crowd. <clears throat> and he says, uh, you know, the, uh, Timothy, you didn't have a tag shot. And I'm saying, tag shot, tag shot, what's tag shot? You know, and, and, and Timothy says, we didn't get the tag shot? And he looks over and he says, right, why didn't we get the tag shot? Um, and I didn't know what a tag shot, I didn't know what he was talking about. Well, the tag shot was where you tie in over the shoulder and you see the same person in with the crowd. Otherwise, in like TV, they sometimes they shoot this way, this way, that way, that way, and cut it together because they didn't have the money to do everything they had to do. And he says, you should have had a tag shot there, Timothy. That's the only criticism he gave your dad. Now, I don't know if he was being kind or whatever, but that was it. And Timothy said, and so anyway, I said, you know, I was thinking, wouldn't that have been great if we'd have shot over your shoulder at the crowd or something? But we didn't do it because of my ignorance. Uh, at least I don't think we did it, you know. It never, you, had a, you had a real side angle that didn't give you the best because you were limited on a balcony. Yeah, there was very, the there, shot wasn't there. Most likely. Right. You, you, you've you seen the film. Yeah. I've never seen the well, film finished. I never really looked at it, but you had a side angle. It put him, it put him and the crowd together, he, but it was really poor. It was like from the corner. It was like catching just a piece of his But face. was it in that rough cut? It might not have been. That, it might not have been there at yeah. that particular time. Right. So anyway... So later, when later we went down the line, we at the Swedish uh, smorgasbord there at Sunset and uh, Doheny at the time. Uh, Stanley invited your dad and me to sit down with him and his wife and have dinner one night. It was a very nice night, you know. And then, of course, you know, Kubrick was going to sue me. You, we hit the front pages when I did the Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Paying Mixed Mix, See my own title: The Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Stopped Living and Became Mixed Up Zombies. The first title was The Incredibly Strange Creature or why I stopped living and became a mixed-up zombie. which And I don't know how that happened, because Kubrick has, was doing Strange Love at the time, Dr. Strange Love, or why I stopped worrying and began to love the bomb. Boy, my brains are here. Yeah. You know, so anyway, I got, I got all... They, they put a cease and desist on my picture while I'm shooting with it. all these attorneys from Columbia. Finally, they, I got on the phone with them. I said, what if I change the order who? Would that be all right? And they said, we'll call you back in 10 minutes. And they called Kubrick on the set and says... He's going to change the, the, the or to who. And Kubrick says, that'll be fine. You know, I said, geez, well, I'm blowing my, every chance I have to work for this man. And they, they called me back and says, Mr. Kubrick said that will be fine. You promised to do it? I says, it's done. So the next day in the trades, I said, we changed the title. But it, I got front page headlines of, of, on, in, in Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety of being sued by Stanley Kubrick and Columbia Pictures. I mean, they're making a, a movie for like $30 million probably, and I'm making a movie for $38,000. And they're really worried about, you know, but Kubrick was like that. What's his is his. He was one of a kind. What, now, what was 
what's the situation? You actually were, uh, where did you stay when you were shooting at World Trade Center? Oh, <laughs> you are kidding, right? You had a dog named Jimmy, right? Yep. He's kind of mangy, German Shepherd, sort of. And you had Caesar, that big uh, Great Dane, with a big tongue that lick you all day long. And you had the horse, that, uh, what was the horse? Agolia. Uh, the Arabian, it was Arabian horse, was it? Yeah. Did you have one or two? One. Just one. Um, I, uh, your dad said that I could sleep in the garage. I said, well, that's okay. And But he didn't tell me that it was where Jimmy, the dog, slept. So while I'm shooting the movie, I'm sleeping in your garage with Jimmy, the mangy German shepherd. Uh, but you know, that's the price you pay for wanting to get started in Hollywood. Not today. Kids, they would never do anything like that. But Jimmy was a good dog. Jimmy was a good dog. Very protective of the kids. Very protective. It's funny you don't have much of a different story than, than Mahakam. Mahakam really thought it was neat because he shared the editing room when it rained with a horse. <laughs> That's great. Well, Carl Mahaki, and, uh, you know, he, he was an uh, ex-Marine, by the way. And he was a tough Marine from what I remember. And uh, he was just trying to get to get it. He, he wasn't a full film editor. He was an editor, but I don't know if it was sound or music or it was something. Sound, and he wanted his first opportunity. Yeah, that was his first opportunity. But you and he wasn't even making any money either. He was probably making fifty-one dollars a week. But you know, he didn't care because that's the way you were in, when in those days. You just wanted to get your foot in the door somehow. You need a piece of film to show somebody. I mean, that's the key to actors. They need film. Cameramen need film when you're getting started out. Because everybody will say, what did you do? Let me see something. What was the climate like on the set? The climate was never really a big problem, honestly. Uh, your dad your dad never looked like a director, ever. If you walked on the set, you wouldn't think he was a director. You would want to know who the guy was making all the noise and talking, because he never stopped talking and all this. But he would always say, what do you think? You know, he asked for opinions. He was smart enough to let people make their opinions. And if he couldn't come up with something in his brain, it would be, Bretto! You know, and, and Gil would come over there and whatever. Gil was so great to your dad, man. He loved your dad. No, your dad was fine. You know, it, it, we had trouble... A couple of times getting good sound. It was noisy and things. And our sound man was Keith, uh, was it Keith O'Brien? I believe it was Keith Pierce, who later was an actor for me in The Thrill Killers. Uh, he just passed away recently. But what a, what a wonderful actor and what a great guy he was. But a lot of it was, I, I would say, you know, there's noises, air conditioners, there's all this. And then he wanted to get close with the camera. And I said, you know, the closer you get with the camera, it, the sound is going to get picked up. But your dad liked to work close and things and stuff. And uh, he liked that distortion, which he said Orson Welles. I remember that. He liked Orson Welles, the, the um, what is that great movie, Citizen King. He liked the, some of those kind of shots. Um, he And, of course, anything that Kubrick did was aces with him. Well, did you think that this movie you were doing was going to mount anything? Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I could see, because I came from the slums, man. I, I, I know what this kind of, what, what things like this are like working and, and the way we worked on the streets and everything. And I was a documentary cameraman in Korea and all over for the, for the U.S. Army, the Signal Corps. So I traveled and I always had to shoot stuff on the fly. So I was, that, I was good at it. And I, I know that when you shoot on the fly, you're going to get something that you don't plan. And your dad never planned anything. He planned where to be and whether we'd get pizza or hamburgers. We didn't eat much more than that. Uh, one day we got steaks. I don't know how he pulled it off. He took us to some restaurant, a really nice restaurant over there in that street, that main street there in uh, Downey. 
and everybody had steaks, and, and actually everybody rather would rather have had hamburgers. I'll tell you, the guys that worked for us were hamburger guys, you know. But uh, no, there was there was no. They, one guy's name was Gene. I remember now. One of the guys in the crew that was with Beretto, his name was Gene, and uh, everybody. Um, uh, and Frank was my assistant. I don't remember his name. And of course, Punchy was my my gaffer. He didn't even know what a gaffer was, and neither did I. But we made him the gaffer because he knew enough about electricity to get by, get me by. Now, lighting I knew because I studied lighting in New York at the New York Institute of Photography. So I could do lighting. That was, that was never a real problem for me. But I had a, I used a, a $1.98 light meter. That I remember. I didn't even have a real light meter because people would say years later, he says, you have to have a spectra. You know, I have a little, you know, what for, man? The eye, the eye tells it all. But no, there was no problem because your dad always would get in this house. I don't know how he got that house. These people were very wealthy. They own a big restaurant, if I recall. And somehow he got in this house. He had a security guy there who had a, a German shepherd. I remember his name was Dave. Uh, he wound up following us around and moving in with us for a long time. He's going to be a producer. After he saw that movie, he was going to be a producer, the security guard, you know? Never made it, I don't think. But uh, no, there was it, it was not like on sets that I've been on where everybody is complains about everything. Nobody really complained because you know why nobody expected a lot. Uh, they all knew why they were there. Uh, Tim, your dad liked uh, Mike Rips, who produced those other movies. Eventually, Mike Rips released my movie, The Thrill Killers, for him because his dad, his dad, Rips' dad owned a bunch of United Artists theaters. I believe down south at one time, and then all of a sudden Rips went bankrupt. I don't know what happened, but your dad came out on the set one day, and uh, I think he gave your dad twenty thousand dollars. It couldn't have been any more than that. It wasn't any more than that because, uh, of course, twenty thousand at that time was a lot of money when everybody's working. When everybody's working for fifty bucks a week, that's a lot of money, you know. That's probably Mike Rips calling now, you know. See if I got a new movie, so I can he can start his career again. I, the last time I heard from him, uh, last time I actually heard from him, I tried to get him to distribute my movie Blood Shack, and he 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 had already lost all his contacts, everything. He couldn't get any. Uh, you know, sometimes distributors have to get the credit at the, the the lab, but you have to pay it out of your end. Everything's out of the producer's end. He couldn't get any more credit because he went bankrupt and everything. Uh, he, he made a movie, a science, a spy movie in Hollywood once. And uh, he, uh, <laughs> I said, I got a movie coming up. I think maybe you should uh, read uh, Mr. Rips. And they said to me, he said, well, who writ the script? I said, excuse me? He says, who writ the script? You mean write the script? Yeah, who writ the script? I never heard that term before. And I use it all the time. Who writ the script? Thanks to Mike Rips, you know. And, I, and your dad, I guess your dad wrote The Sinner, didn't he? What was the original title? It was Frenzy. Frenzy. All the cards had Frenzy on it. Frenzy Productions, Frenzy this. And, of course, Alfred Hitchcock thought it was a good, na good name, Frenzy. He wound up using it. You know, look at it that way. And I've been fired by your dad, and I've been fired by Alfred Hitchcock. It's just one big Frenzy, man. <laughs> what would you say was my dad's weak point? Your dad's weak point? Uh, he lacked discipline. I never saw any real real discipline in, in his career uh, with me, you know, but, but he just, um, your dad just, um, he was on the fly. He did things his way. He liked to do things his way. And, it, and that's the way I've been doing it ever since. So I picked a lot of it up from him. When people say you can't do that, I just look at him and say, oh gosh, 
why do they say that you can't do that? Because now I got to do it. You're forced into doing it. You know, you know your dad. Your dad was great. I just I, I like a musical background when I. You know, we're, we're down here in the slums in Las Vegas, you know, and here they come, the mariachi, they're saying Ray's talking again, you know. What made Carey different than, what made Timothy Carey different? What made Timothy Carey different? Yeah, what did he have that was different? What did he have anything that was <clears throat> um, People ask me that question, too. <clears throat> what made Timothy Carey different was, I'll tell you, Timothy Carey was unique. He was one of a kind. So he was automatically different because he did everything the way he wanted to do it or felt like doing it. He didn't. Copy, he never tried to copy anybody. Yes, he idolized Stanley Kubrick. Why not? He was on all those movies with him. And he learned a lot from Stanley Kubrick. But what he learned from Kubrick, he just... he he. You know, like Stanley Kubrick would be the kind of person that would plot out a shot. It has to be perfect. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely perfect. Very meticulous that this this motivates this shot and this motivates that shot. But your dad being an actor, that was the front runner of the situation. The actor in your dad. So your dad was trying to make himself a star. He was a supporting actor at the time. But he wanted to be a star really bad. And he should have been a star. And this was his vehicle to become a star. I, I, I Now, people say, well, if he wouldn't have directed the movie, he might have had a better shot. And then I would always think about that because I was young then and I would say, but if he didn't direct the movie, there probably wouldn't be a movie. Like when I did Incredibly Strange Creatures, people said to me, uh, and, and again, this is because of Tim. I says, I'm going to direct and I'm going to act and I don't care what anybody says. They would say, oh, you should have got a better looking guy to play the part. Get away from me, man. I'm not, this is... I'm going to do what Timothy Carey did. He didn't make a movie. Timothy Carey did not make a movie when he made The World's Greatest Sinner. Timothy Carey created an, an adventure for himself. It was an adventure. And that's what I did when I made The Creatures. It was an adventure. He, brought, he, he, he created a life within a movie for himself. Because he was living every day of that movie. Inside, outside, whatever. Trying to get money. Waiting. He had to wait months to shoot something. And unfortunately... When he finally got the money to do the last couple of scenes, I was already on another movie. And he never forgave me for that. But I, I already had a commitment and a contract. And I says, Tim, that has nothing to do personally. Because I, was, I used to meet your dad at that French restaurant down there at uh, uh, Alvera Street. He, we used to go down Alvera Street all the time. Every time we had, could meet, we'd meet there and, uh, until, he, until he could put the picture together. It was just unfortunate. I missed a couple of days. And that's when he put my name, I think, at the bottom of the list of all the cameramans. He was mad at me. And I, and I said, why did you put my name way at the bottom? He says, because I was mad at you, and I felt you should have finished the picture, and everything else should have gone the other way. You should have been on my picture. And I said, and then he said, and it really doesn't matter, because years from now when they see your name, that's all that's going to count. They're going to say, that's a Ray Dennis Deckler film. The rest of the names won't mean anything. And from what I gather, it's true. They see my name, and that, that I'm the one that's connected to the movie as far as the photography. But I did shoot almost 90% of it. You know, now your dad was unique, unique. Yeah, there's, there was only one of him. There'll never be another. Um, did you have a chance to meet uh, Zappa? I met Zappa. He came on the set. He was about 17 years old. I think he was rather skinny. 
at the time. He was still in high school, and he said that he could get the high school band to score the movie for free if he would get an opportunity. And uh, and I think Zappa, I believe the school was in that area, wasn't it, down there? It, it just happened to be a coincidence. He wanted what to... Is, what, I, what I think it was, I think he said he had just taken a college class. He wasn't quite high school, he got out of high school. Oh, he was out of high school? He just got, he just taken a college class. It was, it was something at Chaffee College or Alpha Loma. Some college, he took one composing class. And he, he knew that they had a, their own orchestra and he had talked to the, the guy who ran the class. He said, yeah, do you have something? you want to do it? Do you compose something? We'll, we'll do it. See, I felt he was just fresh fresh out of high school or something when I met him. I, you know, he just seemed like a nice kid who who wanted to get started in the business. And that was much later when they finally did the music anyway. But um, uh, I'm glad he did it. It makes the movie more of a legend. A lot, of, a lot of people got their first shot on that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What happened to the little girl that played the part in the movie? Well, someone said she became a strip artist. A stripper? A stripper, yeah. Really? A real popular stripper. She became a stripper. Wow. Yeah, I have to good. check her name on the credits. Yeah, you would. Her mother was very nice. She was a sweetheart. Wait, no, wait, no, wait, no, wait a minute. Did her mother play her mother, the real mother? I don't, I don't think so. No, no, no. The mother in the movie was a sweetheart. I'm trying, I can't remember who the, her mother was. Were you around during casting? No, I had nothing to do with casting at all. Never. How did the How did the premiere go? The The, the premiere of the movie, I wasn't there. I honestly didn't see it. But what you heard of it, did you, did you read any reviews? I didn't know there were reviews. Were there reviews? Variety? Did anybody review it? I never got to see them. It would be interesting to read them. Awesome. Yeah. Masterpiece or mess was really pretty interesting. Masterpiece or mess? Yeah. Is that what it was? That's yeah. great. You know. Yeah. Well, nobody understood it. Or the world's greatest, the, the, the world's worst movie. Had a couple. It was. It was pretty. It was oh, I got some of that too. That kind of stuff, you know. And then, and then, fifty years later, your movie is still playing. You know, uh, it's almost not quite fifty, but it's getting close. What is what? say that my dad basically it's 80 minutes of Tim Perry which it really is but it also is 80 minutes of just a performance what was it what was it did, did my did Timothy Carey have any uh was it was it a stage presence that was unique or was it what, what was it what was it that he could do on camera just like the cockroach scene that would make you remember it well number one your dad always displayed energy and enthusiasm on all of his work, any film you ever see him in, there's that extra energy that's coming out. It's like fire. When he shoots that horse, it's it's not just a guy shooting a horse. It's monumental the way he holds the rifle, the way he does things. When he killed the cockroach, I don't know if I, I always wonder how much of that was your dad, how much was Kubrick, you know. But I don't think anybody could have done it with that that look he had up there when he did that, the face, you know. I don't, nobody could have done that but your dad. It was impossible. And the scene with Marlon Brando, I mean, come on, that's like, wow, you just hit him again, hit him again. You just like beat the crap out of him. You, you want And he's my friend, and I'm saying, hit him again, Marlon, <laughs> the jerk. <laughs> it was great. Your dad should have had the Slim Pickens part in that movie. Uh, you know, that, that, would have been, that would have been the best thing if he could have had that, you know. Uh, Marlon Brando. Uh, there was it. I think the, the there was a working title on that. I don't think they ever used. Yeah, yeah. went through some changes. There's no doubt about that. They finally wound up. What was the title? 
uh, one eye jack. Yeah, but you know, they used that in the movie, didn't they? Say one eye jack somewhere or one eye jack. But I don't know if that was the original title or not. But I want to tell you something. It's one of the best westerns I ever saw. I was stunned when I saw it. And of course, he spent more money for a western than anybody ever did. Brando. I mean, he he went over budget so far at that time. But that was like what ten million dollars or something. Six million. It was six million. I remember. And they were crying about it. Not today. Six million dollars is lunch money. Wow, times have changed. Oh yeah. But it's too bad he didn't. He never directed another movie. Yeah, my dad. My dad had a comment about that too. He said, uh, "Must have never directed another, another movie. Mustn't have liked it that much. Good job, yeah, director." All the actors gave the best performances of their lives in that film, including Carl Malden and Ben Johnson. There was nothing like it, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, Brando had a style. It's one of his tactics was he wanted to get realism. And to get realism, he, he conned the actors into doing things that weren't really appropriate. Like really, really piss the girl off, stick her head inside the chili bowl. Yeah. And that's something you don't do. And it's not really fair to the other actors because he wanted her to get angry. But instead of getting angry, he started crying. Yeah. My dad says, come on, I've got a husband here. It's not that kind of Without telling her, you got a relationship with an actor. Right. He loved doing things like that. There's a scene where Carl Malden kicks my dad, uh, and he really, my dad didn't know why, but right up, Malden was really kicking him with his boots in the back. My dad couldn't get up the next day. He had like his, flat, his back was like black and blue, and his legs was, was out of whack. He had done these kicks over and over. He got kicked in the back. Wow. He couldn't understand why he was doing it. Until later, when he was doing his scene, Brandon came up to him, and then he realized. Your dad told me at, <clears throat> when he worked on East of Eden with James Dean. There's the scene in the um, the bar in the where Joe Van Fleet runs the whorehouse, and she's got her office there, and James Dean going in there to try and get money out of her. And um, there's a scene where she goes in, and they throw they they they're supposed to throw James Dean out, come and get him, and. Um, so Timothy goes in and grabs him and drags him out. Do you remember the scene? Great scene. Your dad told me that he went there to do the scene, and, and when he pulled Jimmy, Jimmy said to him, you got to do better than that. He says, well, what do you mean? He says, I'm going to really go in there, so you've got to really try and stop me, Tim. He says, all right. So he walks back, and, and Gadge, Ilya Kazan, comes up and says, now, I want you to pull him, but I don't want you to take any chances on hurting Jimmy because he's our star. So do not hurt him, no matter what. Do you understand, Timothy? Well, yeah. He says, grab him, but don't hurt him. Okay. Yes, sir. And he goes back and says, Jimmy, uh, Gadge said that I'm supposed to be careful when I pull you, so I can't do it quite the way you'd like me to do it. He says, listen, Timothy, or Tim, whatever he called me. He says, you just grab me because I'm going to be fighting you. And if you don't hold on to me and pull me, you're, I'm, you're going to lose me. I'm telling you right now. So... They shoot the scene, and, and Jimmy's fighting and struggling, and, and well, you can see it in the movie. And he's grabbing and pulling him out, and everything, I mean, you can see he was like, he could have broke his neck or broke his shoulder, who knows what. Pulls him back, and after, after the scene, Gadge says, cut, and he says, Timothy, come here. And your dad goes over, he says, yes. He says, I told you not to do that. You could have hurt Jim by doing what you did. He says, but sir, Jimmy said it would be all right. He, he told me that you, he would take care of it. He, he, what? he said, well, he said, if I did the scene the way that he wanted, he would take care of it and tell you. He says, so he called Jimmy over. Jimmy comes over. He says, did you tell Timothy 
to really grab you and pull you like that? Did you say that it was okay? And Jimmy says, I don't have any idea what he's talking about, Gadge. And you know your dad got fired from that movie because of that? Did you know that? And you know that's not your dad's voice? They dubbed his voice because he, they didn't bring him, bring him back. Gadge didn't even want him to come back and do the looping. I remember my dad talking about how his, his arm was bleeding. Yeah. His arm was bleeding and he went through all the sweat. If he wearing sweat, he tore him off and then he was sweating. Oh, yeah. He says Jimmy took him for a ride up there uh, in Salinas around the curves in his Porsche. And he, he was never so scared in his life as he was when he drove with Jimmy in that car. He said, after I got back, I never would I get in a car with him again. So your dad was not surprised when he got killed. No, they also ran into each other once in Hollywood. It's a liquor store. And my dad said, how you doing, Jimmy? Jimmy looked at him and walked the other way. Really? Yeah. Oh, jeez. So yeah. it's kind of strange. My dad said, well, it's what happens sometimes. Some people get carried away with their own success. Yeah. And that's what he blamed it on. But uh, uh, this, is, this is kind of like El Monte. With the music, yeah, we, we could be at the pit right now having a pastrami sandwich if it was still there, I, I tell you. It doesn't make any difference, you know. And the Thrill Killers were getting ready to shoot this scene at a, at a phone booth. Joe Bardot's getting ready to go in the phone booth and call up Liz Renee. And we got the cameras all set and everything. We're ready to go. And just before I say action, this old woman comes up and she walks into the phone booth and, and she's in there for 20 minutes. She's like 70 years old and we're waiting. Finally, she comes out and she says, what are you gentlemen doing? You were staring at me while I was in. She, cameras all over the place. I said, we're making a movie. Oh, she says, can I watch? I said, sure. I shoot the scene. So Joe goes in and we shoot maybe three takes and then comes out. And this woman is still there and she says, uh, you're the director, huh? I says, yes, ma'am. She says, let me ask you a question. Why do you shoot so many of these scenes? Why did you shoot so many? Why wasn't one good enough? And I says, Ma'am, do you know how many theaters there are in America? We got to have one for each theater. And she says, oh. And she walked away, never saw her again. And then she, everybody just broke up. I don't know where that came from out of my mouth. You know. Uh, so anyway, I don't know how many scenes. It, I, your, your dad was just, he didn't have a lot of scenes in East of Eden, but he sure had a presence. You guys went out together. Did anybody ever recognize him? Oh, yeah, all the time. They didn't know where, though. They didn't know why. They just knew that he was an actor because he, he had a presence. And, and your dad, your dad would, he, he, he didn't have the greatest manners when he ate, by the way. I mean, you know, we have French soup and he, and I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting there, you know. But I lived through it with my, my wonderful grandfather because my grandfather had false teeth and they, they were store-bought mail-order teeth. And they would fall out all the time in the soup when we went out. So I'm, I was kind of used to this. But your dad, you know, he, he I, whenever we went out, he always had a, a, a sport coat on or something. And a lot of times he wore a tie, even just to go to lunch. He, you know, he, 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 was, he didn't look like a cowboy when he was out. Around the house with Doris, he was a cowboy. And when your mom left him, you remember that? Do you remember what happened when your mom left him? <laughs> oh, my gosh, he cried on my shoulder for days. Oh. And he would, Doris! Where's Doris? And he would cry. And I was, Timothy, she's going to come back. No, right? She's never. This went on. This is when we really got to get to. This was after the picture. <clears throat> and um, so he takes a full page ad on in Variety. Doris, come home. I love you. Did you know that? Yeah, he took a big ad on in Variety. Please, Doris, come home. 
your dad loved her so much, and he didn't realize what he had till she left him. And I think that's why she left him, to teach him a lesson. When he when she came back, your dad was the happiest guy in the world. You know, I mean, it's just unbelievable. I once had to take a bus to Downey. I didn't have a car then, and um, he said, "Come on over. I want you to meet somebody." And he had a wrestler friend there. He was a well-known wrestler. Yeah, and uh, Gene and I and we're talking anyway. We, Gene says uh, he can't. He would never go out on any auditions. He can't put up with that Hollywood crap. And Tim says, "You've got to put up with the Hollywood crap if you want to be an actor. Because I have to go there and I have to smile and pretend this and all that. And your dad's a big guy. Because he says some of these guys are just weasels. Because I went with him to Desi Lu for an audition. I think he got the part for The Untouchables. I think he did it. And uh, and I sat there and he and he, he introduced me. He said, "Just let me introduce you." Just sit in the lobby, and when the, when the producer, I'll introduce you to him. You never know, he might like you or something. And I did, I nothing came of it. But but he made that effort to tell me that you gotta, somebody's gotta see you and know you. And people always say uh, it, it's, it's uh, who you know in Hollywood if you wanna get a job. When I met Lucille Ball one time, uh, the two of us, I, I, I was there, a friend of mine, Barry Lee from my movies, an actor, took me to meet her at Desi Lu. And Barry said, uh, you know, Lucy, it's who you know that's going to get, get you going in this business. She says, no, Barry, it's not who you know. And she went like this. She says, it's who knows you. See, and everybody knew your dad. And a lot of people thought your dad was, uh, like, hard to get along with. But he really wasn't. But, you, but see, your dad never did the scene the way the director wanted to do it. I mean, not how much I know from people. He did it his way and because he, he wanted to. He, he didn't act. He lived the part. He lived every part that he ever did. I don't know how he was on the stage. He must have been improvising the whole play, I swear. Did, did he? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um, I know a lot of actors like that, and I love them to death, man, because I, 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 I sit back and wait to see what's coming. You know, I'm, I'm for that. Really, great surprise. Yeah, it's a, it's a roller coaster ride. Like it, it's so out of the ordinary that people don't, people don't, don't know what that, how, to, how to put it into, into uh, perspective. No, you know, compared the, to the rest of the landscape, looking at everybody else in the scene, they're so slanted and tilted and so, so uh, easily read that you know you can anticipate everything. So when you have something that's complete opposite, well, that's it. With my my documentary, Reading, Pennsylvania, Take One, is nobody knows how to react to it because they've never seen anything like it. And then when you watch Reading, Take Two, you you blow your mind away because you you say, wait a minute, what's what's this guy trying to do here? And, and, and there's no way to say it because you're, you're going into boundaries and things are out of boundaries, actually, that you've never gone before when you're a filmmaker. Because I, you know, just my philosophy has been just drop me off at the street corner, any street corner, give me a camera, come back in two hours, I'll have part of a movie done. Because I don't know what it's going to be. I never know the endings of my movies. I figure if I don't know the endings of them, the, the audience is never going to figure them out. Who the heck could have figured Rat Vink and Boo Boo out at the end? No way. I didn't know till I shot it, and that's great because I never knew where I was gone. Neither fish nor fowl, they said. So what, you know? Legend. What at the end of the day? What is the what? What do you make of World's Greatest Sinner in terms of uh, why it had no commercial success, or what was it? What do you make of it today as a, as a piece of uh, art, or you know, as, as it compares to other films? Well, I, I have to see it. Uh, I, the one tape I saw had a lot of glitches and stuff in it. 
So I don't know how the final result was. We'll have to come back. You know, what, but what I'd like to do for you uh, at some point is I'd like to do a commentary over it for you because I was there. You know, I mean, I, I, from a filmmaker's point of view, I'd like to tell people how much that, how much of Timothy Carey stayed with me through all the years. I mean, I would have given anything to make a scene like he did it down there at that uh, arena. I mean, that was great. And I, that scene where he's singing on the stage with a guitar, there's nothing like that in the world. I mean, I'm, I, I almost, I'm sitting there with the camera and, I'm, and, and I don't know, I'm saying to myself, I have to look. I'm looking through the viewfinder, but I got to look up while I'm shooting because I want to get, I want to know this is real. I don't want to see it in this little box. I want to see your dad going across that stage. I mean, and the people screaming and yelling. Another thing, your dad used to always take me uh, to all these these uh, dance places we'd go. We're all black people. And he'd go in there. Your dad would walk into this place with uh, 250 black people. And he would walk in there and everybody came running up to him and grabbing him and hugging him. And I says, wow, he gets along with all these black people. It's amazing. And most people, white people, wouldn't even go near that neighborhood. Because I said, I'll be honest, I said, because I was just a kid, I said, you sure we should go there? He said, well, you're with me, you're safe. And, and boy, how right he was. Man, they're shaking my hand. What do you do, Ray? What do you do? Everything, you know? And, and we, we used to be someplace we used to go get the ribs. They used to get those ribs in this, 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 this place where all these African-Americans had a rib. I don't remember where it was downtown. What great ribs. And, and going there, he didn't, they didn't, he, he, if he didn't want to pay, he wouldn't have had to pay. They just wanted him there. You know, I mean, the big white guy, man, the big, the big kahuna just came through the door. It's funny because uh, there was a story exactly like that, 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 that uh, Mahakian said. Only problem was he made the mistake of separating himself from, from, uh, from Timothy Carey when he got to the ballroom. When he got in trouble, the only one that saved him was my dad. He kept running to my dad and the guy was going to take Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I, I had a lot of, a lot of great, great moments. And, and I, like I was just a kid in Hollywood, I didn't know anything or anybody. And, but I learned from him that, that, that your, dad, your dad probably could have been a great document, documentary filmmaker. Uh, if you put your dad in the coal mines or someplace like that, he would have got in incredible shots because there was no hesitation. You know, but he would have to have a quick cameraman because he, you had to be on the fly with him. I, I tell you that. But... Um, the, and I think as far as any criticism, as far as the final result of the movie, what I saw, it was the fact that technically the sound was tough on the movie. And I don't know, if, if, he, if he would have looped some of it, I think it would have lost that appeal that it has now because it wouldn't have been right. And I don't think your dad would have ever looped it anyway. He didn't care if you heard the camera. And I like that because I, I used that years later. I said, I don't care if you hear the camera. That doesn't mean nothing. It's just a movie, man. You know, just the movie. People would make great comments about your films, uh, horrible comments, and why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why weren't you there? Why didn't you give me a check? That's what I would say to them. You, you have no right to ask me why I did this or why I didn't. Go away, go away. And that's the way your dad was. Shh, go away. It's true because he, he, talked, he, he, talked, he talked about how people with no money yeah, don't make movies because they don't think they make a good enough movie. That's right. That's very true. And he said... Said, well, I made a, I made a movie, and he liked Casavetti's later. He met Casavetti's. Casavetti watched and said his favorite movie was a scene where my dad was crying to God, 
and the camera guy went out of focus. I don't know if it was you doing it. Probably was. I don't know if I shot that scene or not. Honestly, blurry. Yeah. I think it was the only shot he had, and but it works because he's crying, and you see the the the, the, the water in his eye. It, because it goes out of focus, the water in his eyes and his eyes all gla- glazed over with water just turns it into a whole other scene, and it wow. just it becomes his state of mind, and it's like it was really it was really because you know, there was, it was a, technically it was a problem, you know, whatever it was. It's, it's his point was technically it didn't matter because what was, it, it, even even when you even when you fall short technically the fact that you did it it's almost a it's 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 uh it's divine intervention yes makes makes that scene blessed because you went you, you, you went you went and did it that's despite right the hardship yeah. that's right that's why some documentaries are so great because they capture the moment and and not only that is is that I, I, I know one thing your dad wasn't for a lot of quick cutting all the time either your dad liked to see things in, in real time, R-E-A-L, not R-E-E-L. You know, I mean, because when you improvise, sometimes you don't have anything to cut to. And uh, and that takes a lot of guts to do that. And a lot of guts to stand by it and not chop it up. I mean, he was, I learned a lot from him. You know, we had a lot of fun. And I like I said, going out with him to places and things was even even more better. <laughs> what was it like in El Monte back then? It's just a, a like a little town in the Midwest. I was, like I said, we'd eat at the pit every day. What was it like? Did you feel like you were in a production company so we moved from Hollywood to when you're doing a movie? You're a little independent guy, you know, working out of a little garage. What was, did, did you have a did you have a feeling of like you against the big guys, or, or it was just you? It was like going to battle. It was like a it was like a military. Uh, uh, no, actually, for me, it was relatively simple. Um, the hardest problem I remember was using the hose to take a shower when, when uh, out in the the yard somewhere whenever I had to take a shower. But I have I, I never thought about it. I never thought about big movies when we were doing that. I never cared because I didn't know any of that stuff yet. Um, didn't really understand a lot of things myself. I had to learn film technique. I was a documentary cameraman. Um, I had to learn what establishing shots were and wide shots and and when to use close-ups and things. And, and I didn't learn any of that from your dad because your dad didn't understand it either. And so, therefore, as, as the books that I had looked and read about, when I would say, let's have a master shot, he says, what for? You know, I said, okay, never mind. Do it. He would do it this way. He didn't care how it cut. He wanted to shoot the scene the way he saw it, but he never cared how the film edited. Now, most directors today, they panic if they can't get a reaction shot or something. Oh, you know, oh, Movies are different today. Movies are different, yeah, but no, your dad. It, it was just like it was a. It was just like a bunch of family uh, getting together every day, and going out and uh, waiting for lunch. We always waited for lunch because lunch came about six hours late every day, you know, and um, that I remember. Everybody's, but I was so busy I never ate, never gained any weight either in those days. You know, always looked forward to seeing Jimmy at night. <laughs> Caesar would stand on his hind legs and hug me, though. I remember that the first time. It almost knocked me over. My gosh, you know, yeah, no, no. It was, it was. There, there was the formality situation. There was a, a bunch of people who were who wanted to get together, and try and accomplish something. And your dad was the leader, 
and and he was the general. Your dad was a general for a while, and uh, the only thing is, your dad uh, knew all the troops and everybody by their first name. Not quite like the army. Did uh, uh, Did you think of the road that you're making was going to be something? Did you think you were involved in something that was going to be actually you're, you're, a hit? Did you think that was actually going to do something? Did you think you were involved in something that was going to actually revolutionize? Make no, 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 not revolutionize because I didn't know enough about the business at the time. I only knew that I was. I I did know. I did know that I was involved with something that was completely different from mainstream and uh, i wasn't into the, the film situation enough yet myself to you know in fact later years when i learned too much about film is when i did my worst work because people would, would always say well if you only would have done this only done that or whatever you know that and because i had to work for a lot of people to make a living so i had to do it their way whether i liked it or not but in that film no there was we never knew what was going on and nobody questioned anything your dad did the only time we had problems was when we knew we were getting bad sound. When I, when the cameraman would say, I can hear the camera, forget it, you know? I mean, I remember some of those extreme close-ups of the mother in the kitchen or something. There, and, and, and I guess we heard the refrigerator, everything. And you know the scene I'm talking about? You know, but... but um, and she was crying, I remember. And, and uh, God, she was a wonderful lady, that little actress, the, and the mother and the daughter. They were great, great. You know. I don't think anybody was a real actor in the movie, were they? Maybe, maybe the, the guy who was the uh, kind of like the advanced man, the political guy, the uh, the uh, uh, the guy who's going to turn him from his, his take his guitar away and have him become a real politician. Oh yeah, okay. I don't even remember who he that. Might have been an actor. I know, I know that uh, Titus Moody was in the movie. You knew that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember Titus Moody being in the crowd scenes. And uh, I didn't even get to know him then at all. It was just later that he tracked me down. Because Titus would go from Ed Wood and all those people. You know, he made He's probably the only guy that worked for all of them, Titus. And then he wound up being famous as my boo-boo in Red Thinker Boo-Boo. Which, before he died, he says, that they, he owes me everything. He says, I can't go anywhere in this world without somebody saying, boo-boo! You know, that, that made him a legend, you know. Uh, uh, what, what, do you, what do you make of Hollywood? Hollywood today, well, Hollywood is all business and all money and 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 people who who sort of clicks that they'll play it safe with this guy because he knows how to make a movie that'll make a certain amount of money and he knows how to control the situation. You have to be a pretty good general to control those two hundred million dollar movies, man, or else they'll be three hundred million. You know, uh, you have to be a pretty smart guy to to survive in Hollywood. As far as the every once in a while, I see some wonderful movies. I mean, I, I really like, but I don't go to the movie theaters anymore. I just watch them on DVD. I, I, I just can't stand people talking in the background. I can't stand people smoking in the theater. Uh, though we ran the Thrill Killers just recently at the Tropicana Cinemas in uh, Las Vegas here, and um, it was sold out. It was a small theater, but it was a hundred seat theater and 110 people there. So, you know, people came and they enjoyed the film. At least that's what they told me. I mean, you could feel that, that, that they were having a good time there to see a movie. that, And I'm sure the same thing would happen with your dad's movie if you played it. You can't expect big crowds. What you expect are, are diehards, people who just like certain things. And if somebody, if, if, if like Lash LaRue, the cowboy star, if, if Lash was here today and he had a movie playing down the street, for one night I would be the first one in line. 
because that's part of my life. That See, movies represent people's lives, you know. People remember where they saw a movie, if it's a good movie, and it, and it moves them. They'll tell you what theater they were in. They'll tell you who they were with and everything else because you can remember that. Now, when I watch The World's Greatest Sinner again, I will remember so much that I've forgotten. I will remember the day we were there. I probably remember what we ate. I remember uh, all the little things because that's I watched one of my old movies I hadn't seen in 10 years, and, and everything comes back to me. I mean, it, it's just great. It's immortality in, in a strange sort of way. Time capsule, yeah. Time capsule is a very good word for it, yeah. It's a moment in time. Yeah. Yeah, just imagine, you think of an old movie, you think of just try to recreate that scenario, you know, that, vintage, that vintage moment. It's, so it's, you know, when you wouldn't, it, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have a video camera just sitting stationary and, and not even edit it, just let it run for an hour while we were shooting the scenes on the stage or at, at the at the arena, just and just record the activity for, for an hour. What what people real time R E A L what people would give to see that? Would you love to see Stanley Kubrick on the set without cuts and everything, directing a scene or Marlon Brando? But we didn't have that luxury, and they're too stupid to do it today. Everything has to be edited. They don't understand that time capsules are real time, and you want to see. What is going on? You want to see people break for lunch. You want to see that. You want to, because if you do that, then you become, it's like you step into that moment. You, you, you go back to that. You're sitting there watching it because it's real time. You start cutting, you lose the whole thing. Uh, no, I didn't. Um, let me just finish and I'll go into that. Oh, sure. Let me think for a second on that. In my movie, and writing uh, Pennsylvania Take One, there's a scene where I was talking about I, the baseball field. And I got close to me swinging an imaginary bat. I got close to me pitching to myself. I was going to cut it all together where I threw the ball to me and I hit the ball, but there's no ball. It's just in that. And I ran around and I was reliving my childhood. And then I looked. I had this one master tape over the, sh uh, tape over the shoulder of my actor. And, and I, I go, I swing the bat way in, down into the cage and run to first base and run to second. And at that time, I'm so out of shape, I couldn't go any farther. So I decided to come back to first base. And, and just, I let the whole thing go by itself. And I, and I, as I was studying and watching it, I says, that's the real deal. That's the real deal. Because I'm not trying to, to fake a documentary. I'm making a documentary. So when you do these kind of long shots like your dad did and on the stage and everything and all that, Hey, he, all you had to do was follow your dad back and forth, left to right. Like in the in the scene at the um, uh, the the dance hall where your dad's playing the guitar and everything, the, the camera follows him left to right, and you can see Tim. Timothy Carey. Oh, Tim. Oh, Tim. <laughs> so a lot of people do care. Do, do, do say your dad. That's fine. That's fine. It's already a thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry about that. It's so informal here. That's like, fine, though. The scene where your dad, he's playing the guitar, and he's going from left to right, and we're panning with him, I remember, and going back and forth. Uh, I personally, and he's he, he's saying, hold my hand. Is that the right? He's take doing my hand. Take my hand. Take my hand. Is that it? Okay. And he's doing all this, and I, I don't think it, I think it would have been 
better, and I don't know what the final result is, I haven't seen it, but I thought it was better if it was never edited, just the whole thing, because he made all that up on the spot. There was no planning what he did there. I mean, there was planning to set the stage and the scene and everything, but what he was going to do, your dad was not a rock star, but he always wanted to be. There was no, that's what my feeling was. Hey, this Timothy Carey wants to be a rock star. I don't know if he wanted to be Jesus Christ, you know, but that was the plot of the movie. But he did want to be a rock star. I guarantee you that. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, 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 he did. Well, look at the crowd. Look at the screaming and the yelling. That was all real. You know, and, and you know what? I think he could have toured. I believe he could have toured. If it was laid out correctly, I think he could have toured. He couldn't even play the guitar, I don't think. It didn't make any difference because he was a showman. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have Elvis bring him on stage for one number, huh? Those two guys together? Wow, what a movie that would be. What a moment in time. Yeah, um, all my, my feelings were... Um, I, I never really had a bad time. I was hurt when he gave me the, the, the screen credit when, and last on the list. That's what I understand anyway. My name was last. There's about, I don't know who all these other people were. I think that's the way they did it. You know... But then I, that's only because I wanted to. I, I wanted my name to be numbered. But now everybody says, "Oh, you're the guy that photographed the uh, world's greatest sinner," and you were. You, and Frank Zappa did the music. Hey, there's a lot of things there that that you know. Who was Frank Zappa before that? Nothing. I mean, and if you, and who do you remember from the movie? Timothy Carey, Ray Steckler, Frank Zappa. Does anybody talk about anybody else? Tell me. Do they? Can you answer me? Nothing. Yeah, not, for some reason, right? No, not not putting Carl down because yeah. he's a wonderful guy. But 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 the, the celebrity status is that the world's greatest sinner created Timothy Carey, Ray Dennis Steckler, and Frank Zappa. That's where they were all together. It's the only movie all three names are together on. Is that your dad calling us? Ray, you left somebody out. Had to be. It was his first movie. Had to be. And look what he had to work. He had a lot of great stuff to work with there in the movie to build up some sort of suspense, to, uh, the scene at the end with the blood and all that. That's a composer's dream to do scenes like that, whether it's a low-budget movie or not. Because uh, 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 Andre Brummer, a.k.a. Henry Price, who did all my movies, he always enhanced my movies with his music. I mean, we didn't. I, I, and I never, I never told him one time how to do the score. I, I, I was always looking forward to seeing the movie with his music because I knew he was going to make it better. That was the key. We never had an argument over that. We had arguments in personal life, but we never had an argument over how the music was to be. And I bet you he told Frank, "Just do it your way." I guarantee you. You think so? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm positive. You think so? <laughs> I would say that uh, it's too bad we never made a movie together. Um, there was a sh what was the movie that um, not the Long Voyage Home and O'Neill. It was a Eugene O'Neill movie that William Bendix played the lead in. And I'm really sorry, and I, all of a sudden I got a mental block. I can't remember the title. It was, uh, and I told him that this is the movie he should remake. 
hand raised. Give me a second. Maybe it'll come to me. It's Eugene O'Neill, and it was... You know what? I can't remember the title, but William Bendix played it originally. And I used to have discussions with your dad. I said this, and he said, are you crazy? I said, no, no, no. This is a movie you should make. If anybody's watching this tape, uh, find it. Eugene O'Neill, William Bendix, you'll know what I'm talking about. It has a strange name, and it was made into one movie. But that was a part, I said, because it was so different, and William Bendix was completely different for the part when he did it. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. If you're, if your dad, uh, the only thing I always regretted is not, is that your dad never got any big parts or big supporting roles in his later years when he should have been working all the time. And um, I don't have an answer for that because nobody hires me either, so it's the same situation. But you know what? I don't miss any of it, and I don't know if your dad missed it or not, but I doubt it. I mean, he was pretty intent with life the moment Doris came back. From that point on, is he, he changed his attitude about a lot of things, I think. So, and then you were born after that, so they were having a good time. What do you have, just one brother? What, one brother. Mario? Four sisters. Four sisters? Yeah. How many did we did you have when I was there in 59? 59? Just, I don't even, I remember one in diapers, just about playing out there, but he was always had to walk the hose. He was playing with the hose all the time. Do you remember that? Who's Mario? Now, Mario called me a few times. Why did you do that? Yeah. You know, it's it, yeah, it's just that he didn't. What, what is he doing? What's your brother doing? Well, speaker. Is he? My dad had a Did he? That's great. That's not hard to do, believe me. The film and some of the people you have to put up with, boy, I'll tell you, it's not easy. Yeah. It's not a picnic. That's it. One or the other. Yeah. You got to You have to. Even even if you love it, it's it's hard to keep going. It's difficult. Because you get so much criticism, and everybody is a director. And you can stop, put your camera at the gas station, and, and even in Reading, the guy that, owned the, uh, that worked at the Mobile gas station, he came up and was telling me how to shoot, you know? And uh, I said, do you own this gas station? He says, oh, no, I just worked there. I said, oh, okay. And I wanted to say something nasty, but I didn't, because I said, you know what? I think I just made his day. Just the fact that I was there shooting on his property, I think I made his day. He'll have something to talk about the rest of his life. That's the whole, that is the key. Yeah, if you have money to market it, you'll find right. it. You'll find something. You'll get money back. Yeah, I never started a movie with the intention of making money, but then with, with my my background and career, that's normal anyway. <laughs> so, 
hey, one more film with Timothy Terry, you know? So I'm, the movie, the title is The Ape, Something the Ape. I'm thinking it's getting closer. It's something the, the ape, something and then the ape, Eugene and the something and the ape. I know. Yeah. Subtitle right Subtitle. over this. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to have you watch the movie and then send it to David and he'll be that you have all this all this fresh knowledge and once you see some of the vision I gave you, you'll be able to take the vision of it. Oh, great! Yeah, so it's going to have way cooler sound. You did the sound as well as that sound. So the sound on the original is actually really good. Mm-hmm. There's moments that that, that aren't things I've learned from Frank is really above par when it comes to getting Jimmy Hendrix to work in his film. That's great. They they filtered and did a whole whole bunch of things. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah, so they took whatever it was and balanced it out. That's great. That's great. Because I know how how tough it was. And you know what? Shooting sound is tough anyway on location. It's really, really difficult. I'm amazed by shooting sound. Good. I can't wait. But you know, for me to uh, to arrive there at that little house and that garage with a horse and two dogs, and to meet all these people and the neighbors, and not all the neighbors appreciated what was going on, by the way, and then to travel to the uh, the arena with all the wrecking and turning over the cars and everything. Can you close that door? Now, we got a little quiet here finally. Hold on one second and keep going. I, as I think back of, of leaving Summerstock in Berks County at the Green Hills Theater and driving all the way to California to meet your dad and arriving at his house in Downey um, and uh, seeing the, the little garage and everything. and all, Everybody was working in the garage. There was an office in there, I remember, and all these people. John Andrews is another wonderful character. He, he was he was there. I met him for the first time, and he was Slim Arkansas Andrews' uh, uh, son, and also Tex Ritter, the cowboy star's godson, John Ritter's dad. And um, I met all these guys: Frank, the assistant cameraman, and Gene and Gil Barreto, and uh, Keith Keith Pierce, the sound man. And uh, it was just like I knew him all my life, the atmosphere. And everybody was anxious to start a movie, and they, they didn't know what, what it was going to be. And I had, a, of course, even then I waited a week or so before we started shooting. I think it was not eh, maybe not quite a week. <clears throat> but to be able to go back to the arena with all that crowd stuff and the breaking of the windows and the turning over the cars and stuff, to be able to live that, to, to watch your dad on stage singing Take My Hand and all the crowd and everybody yelling and screaming and watching all this stuff. It wasn't a movie. It was an adventure. There's no question in my mind about it. For me, it was a big adventure. Then when Ron McManus, the cameraman who brought me out, who was in my platoon in New York, uh, when he decided to part ways with your dad and your dad says, i got to take over, that's a moment uh, that in anybody's life where you say, oh, wow, what do I do now? And, of course, I blew the first scene, but fortunately he let me do a second take, and he 
didn't want to do a second thing because your dad liked to do it one time because he never could match anything to be perfectly honest and and who cared because it was always exciting to to be able to relive all that and uh, all the scenes with everybody and being at your first experience as a county man and knowing that somebody trusts you and I think that's the greatest feeling I had with Timothy Carey was he trusted me. I was only 21 years old and it didn't matter to him that I was 21. What mattered to him was I, I presumed was that I was helping him accomplish what he was trying to do. And there were times your dad didn't know what he wanted or what he was trying to do. And I didn't quite understand all that at the time. But as I became a, film, a filmmaker, filmmaker down the line, there were times that I didn't know what I wanted. But you just keep moving along and sometimes you just create magic because you don't know what you're, what you're trying to get exactly. And things happen. And, and in that movie, a lot of things happen. And I, I just hope that people today get a chance to see this film because ah, it, it was magic. They don't like to use that word magic in a lot of places in this world. They don't like the word magic. But if there was any magic, it was magic, the magic of Timothy Curry accomplishing something with very little money and uh, his personality. His personality was so strong. I mean, who'd want to go up against him anyway? He's a pretty big guy, so he better do what he said. And, you know, and, and I miss all the hamburger and pizzas. And I miss the pit from down there and down where we used to eat all the time. I miss all that because it was just, it was, okay, it was small-time movie. But from a kid from Pennsylvania working with Timothy Carey, the man from The Killing, uh, the man from Paths of Glory, One-Eyed Jacks, uh, and I say the man, I mean the man. He was great in every one of those roles. To be able to work with him, when you're a kid from the South 10th Street in Reading, Pennsylvania, you just go to movies, you pay a dime to go see your movies, all of a sudden you work with the, you're working with a real deal, somebody who's been in movies, and somebody who worked hard to get to where he was, and now he's producing and directing, and, he, and even then, Tim was very young. No, Timothy Carey, wherever you are, buddy, um, I hope you're listening because I love you. <laughs> and if you want, uh, I'm not looking forward to meeting you right now, Tim. I want to wait a while yet, but if I do ever get to that point where I meet you again, I, I just want to say one thing. Let's do it again. That's true. Is that okay? That was fantastic. Thank you.